today we continue our expositional journey into the letter of James, likely a sermon that was captured by a disciple in the first century, where James is addressing Hebrew Christians, and we find such wisdom in his book. In today's lesson, taken from chapters 4 and 5, we learn of nine presumptions that we can indulge in that are injurious to our spiritual health. And they're actually foolish because they don't acknowledge the sovereignty of God. It's nine ways in which we can make ourselves bigger than we ought to be in our own minds, in which we can presume to take the sovereignty that belongs to God and appropriate it to ourselves. I don't want to do that. James shows us how to avoid it with his wisdom book on how to avoid presumptions in our text today. Thank you, friend, for joining us at Arlington United. We begin our nine presumptions with verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4, and there are two presumptions found in these two verses. He says, Don't speak evil of one another, brethren. He that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. It's an astounding statement that James makes that actually to speak evil and to judge one another is actually to speak evil of and judge the law of God. What can this mean? Well, these two presumptions, speaking evil of one another and judging one another, are really direct attacks on the sovereignty of God. The word that James uses here in terms of speaking evil of someone else is found in the Pauline writings and Petrine writings as well. It's catalaline uh, um, or catalalia in a noun form. And to speak evil, it's associated with whispering and backbiting. Do you remember that James had told us that the tongue was a poison and could kill at a distance, just like a poison? That's exactly what he's talking about here. This idea of whispering behind somebody's back or backbiting, we would call it talking behind somebody's back. And Peter warns against it in First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 1. He, he condemns evil speaking. Um, Paul warned against it um, in 2 Corinthians 12, chapter 20. We find that uh, Romans 1 and 30, Paul associated this uh, type of uh, sin of backbiting and evil speaking, this catalalia, with the the sins which are found in the in in the pagan world in people who worship false gods, and this is the idea that if we really serve God, we have to obey the royal law, and that means loving our brother as ourselves, and that's why speaking evil of someone else actually goes against the royal law. And that's why to speak evil of a brother is akin to speaking evil of the law. So I don't have a problem with God. I've just got a problem with this guy. I've got a problem with this lady. What James is challenging us to see is that if we, um, in an inappropriate way, slander others, if we gossip about others, then what we're doing, rather than confronting the issue with that person, as Matthew 18 uh, engages us to do, or taking that issue to a spiritual authority if we cannot engage it directly with the person because there's danger of further injury for ourselves or our families. If we don't directly confront them or take the issue to spiritual authority who can, if we just slander the person or gossip about the person, then we're not loving them as we love ourselves. And this is 
an attack on the law. It's an attack on God's sovereignty. It's an attack on the royal law of loving one another. And so he says that we can't do this. We can't engage in this activity. The Old Testament is is shot right through with this principle that speaking evil of others or slander or gossip is not appropriate. And actually in Psalm 101, uh, verse 5, it says, whoever privately or, or privately slanders his neighbor, him will I cut off. It's actually a covenant breaker if we slander others and we backbite against him. You know, this is a real challenge for us because there's no human activity that is more delicious and juicy than to participate in gossip. But there are a few things that God hates more. And so this is sort of a, a coda on James' idea that the tongue has to be controlled, but it's difficult to control. He said, no person can tame the tongue. And so therefore, we have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to help us with temperance. We have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to grow the fruit of the Spirit in us that helps us to have long suffering and meekness and gentleness and goodness that would reign in our speech when we're tempted to slander others, which is to tell an untruth that's not in their presence, or to gossip about others. And that can be to tell a truth that's not in their presence. Remember what Bishop David Bernard said of the United Pentecostal Church International. He said, a gossip is someone uh, who will never tell a lie so long as the truth will do as much damage. Well, James takes that possibility right out of our lives. He says to do that is to is to steal God's sovereignty. It is to to speak against the law. And this is not just the 613 commandments of the of the old covenant, but is to speak against the most uh, important two commandments of the New Testament. And that's to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And secondly, the corollary follows from that, obviously, that we can't just uh, not speak evil of others, but we can't judge others. To judge others is to place ourselves in God's place. Now, we are encouraged in Scripture that judgment begins at the house of God. We are encouraged in Scripture that uh, by people's fruits, we will know them. We're encouraged uh, by the Apostle John to try the spirits to see whether they be of God. And so, you know, we don't wander through life just naive and um, in a way that is not appropriate in terms of gauging what's happening around us or the spirits that are operative around us. And yet only God knows a person's genetics. Only God knows a person's early life experiences. Only God knows a person's motivations. And only God knows the external and internal pressures that led them to make a certain decision. Only God knows how much a person knows or, or what mitigating circumstances were involved. And that's why God reserves ultimate judgment in terms of salvation and ultimate judgment in terms of the character of a person and which direction that they're headed. Um, we can judge a person's works, but we can't judge their motivations. Only that, uh, th th that has to be left only to God. And so it's important that we see ourselves as witnesses. Remember that in Acts 1 and 8, Jesus prophesied that when the disciples received the power of the Holy Spirit, that this power would enable them to be witnesses. It does not, the Holy Spirit does not give us power to be judges. It gives us power to be witnesses. So let's stay in the right place in the courtroom. You know, there are many witnesses. It can be innumerable in different trials. The, the, the prosecution and defense can call as many witnesses as they like, but there's one judge. And, and, and in life, so it is in eternity. There's one judge and his name is Jesus. And so we don't need to assume or presume uh, that sovereignty. We need to leave it in the Lord's hands. We don't want to speak evil of one another. 
and we don't want to try to become the judge. So the first presumption, the first presumption uh, is to try to set ourselves up to speak evil of others. The second presumption is judging others. The third presumption we find in verse 13, he says, go to now. This is kind of a, a King James phrase that, that uh, in, in West Tennessee vernacular, we'd say, y'all hold on a minute or, or wait a minute now. <laughs> go, go to now. You that say um, today or tomorrow, we're going to go into this city. We're going to stay there a year. We'll buy and sell and, and get gain. He says, you don't have any idea what's going to happen tomorrow. This is very reminiscent of what Jesus said. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Take no thought for the morrow or your raiment. Um, this is not a statement by Jesus or James that we shouldn't uh, plan, but that our plans have to be subject to God's sovereignty. The presumption here is to plan without taking into account God's sovereignty. Um, the context here is that uh, Jewish people were among the, the Near Eastern culture's most prolific traders. And uh, because that they had been conquered in their native land by many empires, beginning with the Assyrian Empire, then the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Medes for a little bit. Um, then you had uh, Alexander the Great and the Greeks. Then you had the Egyptians under Ptolemy. You had uh, the Seleucid Empire. You had um, finally the Romans. They didn't have native lands or citizenry in the same capacity that other cultures did that had not been overrun by these various empires because Israel was right on a crossroads of civilization here in the Fertile Crescent. And so they had been conquered many times. And this was a time in, in Jesus' time and James' time of the founding of many cities across the Mediterranean basin. And in order to get colonizers of these cities, they would offer citizenship and trading to those who would come in. And so Jewish people were very attractive in terms of uh, colonizers or citizens because they often brought trade with them. And so this is a very common thing for Hebrew believers to say, hey, we're going to go in and we'll get in on the ground floor, the IPO or initial public offering, if you will. We'll get these trading rights. We'll make our fortune and we'll come back and we can live again in our native land, uh, having earned our citizenry in uh, a distant colony and having earned our fortune there. So this was not an uncommon um, characteristic of business or, or business practices of the day. And so James is not offering up something theoretical. This would have been very practical to his audience. And yet he says, you can't make those plans on your own. You have to, you have to make room for God's sovereignty. He said, what you should do um, is, is you should say uh, in verse 14, if the Lord will, we'll live and do this or that. In other words, our next breath is dependent on God. And so we can't be presumptuous about our own sovereignty. So number one presumption, we don't speak evil of others. Number two presumption, we don't judge others. Number three presumption is we don't uh, have false certainty in our lives, false certainty. Everything in our lives is dependent upon the gracious provision of God. Remember what James says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights in whom there's no variableness or shadow of turning. Our own lives have so much variation. It has so much turning in them, so many ups and downs, but we can depend on the sovereignty of God, not our own plans, not our own um, daytime or, or our, our calendar, uh, not even Siri. We, we have to depend on the Lord to, to, to um, rule in our lives. And he says in verse 17, as an aside here, 
the person who knows to do good and doesn't do it to them that is sin. Now, some critics of Christians will say, as long as there's one person in the world who's hungry or lonely or uh, needs help, uh, if you know that that person's out there, then you're not a real Christian. It's a sin for, because you have to do all the good that you know about. That's not the context of what James is talking about here. Of course, we should do the good that we know, but we're required to do the good that's in front of us. No one person can meet every need of every person in the world. We can, again, we cannot take on God's sovereignty. We can't take on his provision, but we can do the good that's in front of us and the good that we know to do. Um, Jesus had said, the poor you have with you always, indicating that no one can eradicate every problem from this world. It's, it's a, a fallen world full of broken people and broken relationships, but we are called to lift up the light and to meet the needs that we can, but we can't do everything. What James is talking about here is the good that we know to do is the good that God directs. Remember, the presumption is assuming the sovereignty of planning, and we have to submit our plans to God and allow him to direct our lives in the way that he sees fit. So no speaking evil of others, no judging, no false certainty, and then the presumption of self-will that James talks about. Self-will. He says that we can't uh, rely on our own will, but we need to uh, we need to give our plans uh, subjection to God's sovereignty. It says in verse 5 and 1, go to now. Here's that phrase again. Hold on a minute, y'all. Uh, in, in West Tennessee speech, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that will come upon you. Again, remember James is turning upside down this idea that was present in some of his Jewish contemporaries in some uh, belief systems that they had that Riches were a sign of divine favor and that the richer you were, the better God liked you. And it was sort of a 2,000-year-old um, a prosperity gospel. That idea is not new, that divine favor results in material blessings and it's a one-to-one -one relationship. It's simply not true as any cursory examination of scripture will reveal. He says, you need to be careful, guys, because there are miseries that are coming upon you. And here's the fifth presumption. Uh, that he talks about. It is arrogance, arrogance, thinking that because we have material blessings or physical health or that we have um, affirmation from people or that we have professional prosperity or recognition that this insulates us against the vicissitudes of life. In fact, it does not. He says, you need to understand if you're rich and you're relying on that, that there will come a time when that will fail you. And he says, um, your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and your silver is cankered. So there were th basically three expressions of wealth and prosperity in the, in the ancient world. Grain, garments, and gold. Grain, garments, and gold. He couldn't just go down to Target and pick up a shirt. Um, garments were, um, were precious. They were not uh, manufacturing. Everything was handmade in these days. And so garments were quite expensive. Most people did not own multiple changes of clothing. You had to be very wealthy to have multiple changes of clothing. Remember that when Jesus was crucified, the, the Roman soldiers were casting lots for who would get his garment because it was, um, even though he was an itinerant preacher, just a garment was valuable. And so they were actually looking at that rather than to returning to the family. They wanted to receive that garment. So grain, gold, and garments. And James said, all of this is going to tarnish. All of it's going to be moth-eaten. All of this is going to spoil. Every part of riches 
corrupts. Remember the, the, the rich fool that Jesus told about when uh, God came to him through uh, confrontation and said, tonight you're, you're a fool, your soul is required of you. He wasn't a fool because he was rich. He was a fool because he didn't know why. Rich people, it's not that it's hard to enter the kingdom of heaven because riches encumber somebody. It's because we become dependent on them rather than upon God. Let me say to you very directly, James is clear about this point. Arrogance is presumption. And anything that we rely on rather than on God becomes a curse to us rather than a blessing. If it's our health, if it's wealth, if it's education, if it's our relationships, anything that points us away from dependency upon Christ to dependency upon anything else is a detriment to us spiritually. And we need to think carefully about that and the presumption that is in our own lives. You know, you don't have to have a billion dollars to consider yourself wealthy. It can be your relationships that cause you to feel wealthy and secure. You need to be careful that our only security, our true security, is found in Christ and Christ alone. So no speaking evil, no judging, no false certainty, no self-will, no arrogance, and then no self-sufficiency. Your gold and your silver, you've heaped treasure together for the last days, and and the hat, friend, you think that you've really stacked it up because you have personal agency and you have you have riches and you have prepared things against the last day, but James says, it's not going to work. We have to be right with God, not just right with circumstance. Our horizontal preparations have to be buttressed by vertical preparations. It's not good enough to have a great bank account or a great 401k or to exercise a certain amount of days or, or to, to have a good diet or to you know recycle and keep your lawn clean. Whatever preparation you make in this life to make yourself a good life, remember, if you're not right with God, all of these other preparations are shifting sand. Jesus made that very plain when he said, whatever you build your life on, you'd better build it upon hearing the words of God and doing the word of God. Well, speaking evil, judging, false certainty, self-will, arrogance, and self-sufficiency. Six of our nine presumptions. Let's close with the final three. Oppression of others. He says in verse four of chapter five, Behold, the hire of the laborers that uh, have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, cries out. And the cries of those who have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. In these days, wage workers lived literally hand to mouth. If you didn't pay a worker on the day that you hired him out, a day worker, a, a wage worker, they might not eat that night. They might not eat the next day. So it was critical to pay them in a timely fashion and to be fair to them and to have compassion on them. One of the problems with riches is that more is not enough. If we begin to rely on what we have rather than who gave it to us, then we want more and more and more. And eventually it leads to treating others without compassion. You know, socialism is the exaltation of power and capitalization, uh, capitalism is the exaltation of riches. Neither are a proper foundation for a society and neither way of grasping at power or riches is a good foundation for a spiritual life or an individual or for a family. We don't need to oppress others in order to get more and more and more. Why does he say this cry has come to the Lord of Sabbath? Because 
The Lord of Sabbath is the Lord of inefficiency. What in the world do I mean there? I mean that God commanded that one out of seven days, over 14% of your life, you were to rest. Our culture demands more and more and more, more productivity, more emails, more miles driven, more, more um, meetings attended, more sales that are generated, more product that is produced, more and more and more. God says every seven days, I want you to take a rest. Every seven years, I want you to let the land lie fallow. And every 50 years, I want you to let all debts go free. That was the Old Testament law. The Lord of Sabbath was the Lord of rest and the Lord of provision. He was the Lord that said, I am your source, not your striving, not your productivity, not your education, not your health, not your wealth, not even your relationships with one another. But your relationship with me is the foundational provisional fact of your life. The fact that you're right with me means that you're going to be provided for. That's what the Lord of Sabbath was teaching his people through the rest that he gave in Sabbath. And he's saying here, if you oppress others to get more and more and more, the Lord of Sabbath is not pleased because he didn't teach us that. He didn't teach us that everything is dependent upon how hard we work. He taught us that he gives to us and that work is a form of worship. It's not a form of extracting everything that we can get from this world around us, but it's rather a form of dressing this world around us and subduing it as the initial command was to Adam and to Noah. As the last Adam, as the the, the new humanity, as the, the, the humanity um, 2.0, homo Christianus, we joyfully work and lift our work to God as a testimony of his goodness to us. And we rely on him for his provision. We certainly don't take advantage of one another and bite and claw and scratch to get ahead. That is not a Christian way. It's presumptuous to do that. And James warns us against it. He says, you've lived in pleasure on the earth, verse eight, uh, excuse me, verse five, and you've been wanton. You've nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Basically, James is saying, you really think you've made it easy for yourself, but what you're really doing is you've become the fatted calf, the day of slaughter. In this culture, it was very common to keep a calf and you kept them inside the barn and fed them grain in order that they could become fat and tender for the feast. And James is saying, if you think that you're just taking it easy on yourself, what you've really done is prepared yourself for, for spiritual slaughter. You, 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 you basically, you've prepared yourself against judgment. If you're taking advantage of other people and you're self-reliant and you don't uh, pay attention to God and his sovereignty, to his provision, if you're not living according to his rules, if you're not loving other people, if you're, if you're extracting what should not be extracted from them and you're taking advantage of them, then all you're doing is preparing yourself for your own demise. You're like a fattened calf. And he's saying, basically, enjoy your meal because judgment is coming. So the presumption of speaking evil, judging, false certainty, self-will, arrogance, self-sufficiency, oppression of others, and pleasure-seeking. And finally, he, he, he serves up this last presumption. He says, don't pronounce sentences on other people. He said, you've condemned and killed the just that doesn't even resist you. Killing here is sort of a, a hyperbolic word. Um, it's similar to when Jesus said, you commit murder when you're angry with your brother. And what James is saying is, if you write someone off and you, you basically put a judgment against them and you write them off relationally and just say, you know, there's no hope for them. They'll never change. And, and uh, I, I'm just going to write them off and I'm going to pronounce judgment. I'm going to condemn them. Then we're not only judge here, but we've become 
as it were, the executioner. We have killed their uh, possibility in our mind of ever reforming or ever being transformed by the power of the gospel. If there's one thing we learn in the New Testament, people change and they can change for the good when God gets hold of their life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And James says, don't presume to condemn someone and to think that they can never change by the power of the Spirit because as Paul said, such were some of you, but God in his great mercy made salvation available. I'm paraphrasing there. So what are our nine presumptions that James warns us against? Number one, speaking evil of others. Oh, it's a tempting, tempting thing to do. Let's don't do it. Number two, judging others. We are witnesses, not judges. Number three, false certainty. Yes, we plan. Yes, we occupy until the Lord comes, but everything is subject to God's sovereignty. Sovereignty. Number four, self-will. We don't just do what we want to do. Again, we place ourselves under God's plan for our lives. Number five, arrogance. We don't need to elevate ourselves or arrogate ourselves. We need to elevate Christ and lift him up. Number six, presumption of self-sufficiency, thinking that it's all about us and what we can do. No, the Lord of the Sabbath is our provider, and we need to trust in him and his plan for us. Number seven, oppressing others. Life is not a zero-sum game. God never taught us to extract everything out of everybody else. God taught us to be generous and to love others as we love ourselves. Number eight, seeking pleasure without any understanding of the future. It's okay to have pleasure in life, but it's not the goal of life. The goal of life is to serve God, and he gives us many pleasures along the way. And finally, condemning others, sentencing them to a permanent judgment when we don't know what God's plans are for them and what transformation he might accomplish in their lives. Wow. If you can read and study James and not be convicted, you might be in a dangerous place. This guy, this apostle, this half-brother of Jesus really brings it, doesn't he? And when he says, brethren, you have to watch out because he's got heavy artillery headed our way spiritually. He's, he's really challenging us to put into action the royal law of love, to love our neighbor as ourselves. He's really challenging us to put into action the law of loving God with our whole heart, not lifting up ourselves and all of these presumptions that we talked about today. Nine presumptuous activities and attitudes. Could we eliminate them from our lives? Could we ask the Holy Spirit to work within us, to perfect us, to encourage us, to sanctify us, where our lives are not riven by these negative practices? That's my prayer today for myself. It's my prayer for you. Thank you, friend, for joining us at Arlington United.